Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I am one of your hosts, Phil Isco. And I am your special guest host, Emily St. James. Uh, I am here for, in the, sorry, and I'm your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your regular host, which is a bouquet of flowers that has a secret message for you. <laughs> yeah, encoded in lyrics that I still don't really understand how that works, but that's whatever. Um, that's but with such us- a good way to send messages. Honestly, I'm going to sure. start doing it. I'm going to start uh, doing with it. us today. Most importantly, our BJ and Harmony Colangelo. I hope I got that right. Did I get that right? You got it right. Yeah. A co-host of the podcast, This Ends at Prom, which is a podcast about coming-of-age movies, primarily focused on girl movies, but not entirely. Um, To talk with us today about John Woo's Hard Boiled, (laughs) everyone's favorite coming-of-age movie. Um, So, I mean, Emily reached out to you guys with Mm -hmm. the list of of movies, and you guys picked Hard Boiled, and I'm super excited to talk about it, but I'm really curious as to how this uh, how this happened uh so so fun story at the start of the year uh you know we've all been through it the past few years it's been it's been a rough go for a bit here uh my news resolution was to only watch movies that will make me at some point go oh hell yeah and that comes in many forms it does. but none perhaps more full of giddy and glee every five seconds for extended periods of time than John Woo's Hard Boiled. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is like, so, I mean, 
if I'm being completely honest, I've seen this movie, but kind of in bits and pieces. I've never sat down to watch it like all the way through. As our listeners know, I worked at many video stores. And as you can imagine, many video store uh, employees love Hard Boiled. So it's been mm-hmm. on in various video stores that I've worked in. So I've seen it, but like never sat down to watch it. Uh, this is uh, this is a lot of movie. This is mm-hmm. This is like... <laughs> I, I I wish that someone counted how many bullets were used, though. There's the internet, unfortunately, so many, <laughs> so many bullets. I saw this movie for the first time in college. I took a course on uh, violence in American cinema, and my professor mm-hmm. was the coolest. And she was like, "All right, so we're, this is a movie about American cinema. However, we have to talk about hard boiled because it's going to change violence in American cinema. So strap in, we're watching." <laughs> and all of us were just like melting our brains out of our ears we could not believe what we were watching and that was what got me to fall in love with john woo it's so emily have you seen hardboiled before no i watching this i realized i have not seen any of john woo's um films before before he came to the u.s i've seen i've seen i've seen most of his u.s films and like none of his hong kong films yeah. And uh, I was glad to start with this one because I feel like I feel like at the time the killer was seen as his masterpiece, yeah. but mm-hmm. over time this has sort of supplanted that. Yeah. And I I get it. It's uh, it is quite the piece of cinema. It's you know, watching it, I was really kind of floored by it in a bunch of ways. But what kind of hit me the most was I could completely understand why Hollywood fell for this guy, right? Like what why they were like this is the next action guy mm-hmm. and then i also understand how hollywood ruined him mm-hmm. <laughs> right like you know what i mean like you can see how sort of i guess you don't think of the action genre as particularly fragile per se but like it does kind of exist on a razor's edge and mm-hmm. when it tips the whole thing kind of falls apart like it really is a balancing act and i think this movie uh really does that but then i also can see how through translation and through hollywood i mean he really only i was looking at his filmography as i was as i was watching this film and like he really doesn't do that many american films like he's got hard target in 93 which follows this broken arrow in 96 face off 97 mission impossible 2 i mean face off being the greatest movie that's ever been made of course but (laughs) then mission impossible 2 kind of ruins him ultimately Mm -hmm. i think which is that people are sort of like wait i don't know that i like this these two things together and then he kind of does wind talkers and paycheck and then it's done like Mm -hmm. it really does feel like he um i don't know that hollywood totally understood the delicacy that is I think um, I think that I rewatched the Mission Impossible's last year, and I kind of think Mission Impossible Two is underrated. Like I think it's the worst of the Mission Impossibles, so it's that's a really good franchise. Yes. It's just just there's there's a bunch of like things in it. Watching Hard Boiled like made me understand it more because Hard Boiled has a similarly convoluted plot that you kind of don't need to care about, and I feel <laughs> like. I feel like American critics in that period especially got very hung up on, okay, we need this to make sense. And sometimes, you know, you just need to see Tom Cruise pull his face off and you're like, oh, wow, he was someone else all along. (laughs) I totally agree. And I'm, I don't, hate mission impossible 2 it is my least favorite of the of the trilogy of the trilogy of the franchise but i think the thing that ages the most poorly about that film is the limp biscuit component <laughs> <It's> that, 
you know what i mean it's the music that the like the guitars and the like trying to be super like overtly masculine stuff about it mm-hmm. that ages poorly the, the all the slow motion and the like ballet of cars spinning around like oh, I'm, I'm totally on board with it yeah. like the john woo of it all works yeah. it's john woo in 2000 being jammed into this like thing before we get back on topic i i bj and harmony i want you to also be able to weigh in on this because it's an important mm-hmm. question we have a style guide here at podcast like it's 1992 i need to know if it's mission impossibles or missions impossible Ooh, <laughs> i go with mission impossibles okay yeah that that I, would I, sound I, right I to that's, me i think that's, that's more missions pleasing to the ear weird. yeah there's something Adding an Which I feel like that just... would be the grammatically correct. Like I'm sure somebody correct. at like the AP style guide is like, mm, it's actually missions, but I don't <laughs> care. I'm not doing that. Yeah. Fuck you, AP style guide. <laughs> <laughs> so Harmony, you look like you had something you wanted to say before uh, Emily asked about the grammar. Oh, please. I mean, I have nothing but a million things to say, but in, in terms of this particular space and mm. time, mm. Um, I think the issue is not so much John Woo. I think it's that you are now having uh, a hat on a hat. You're having a snake eating its own tail. The issue is that John Woo is so cool and so captivating and understands how to film action in a way that we as Americans don't know how to film action the way that they do in China, like at all. It's not even close how bad we are compared to them and when john woo blew up post hard boiled everyone started to do john woo stuff and some people are more successful than others um obviously you have like desperado being one of the most awesome movies of the 90s but once you get to say the 2000s like the matrix and post stuff got real serious stuff got real sterile and that's when things start to implode on themselves. It's not so much Hollywood doesn't know what to do with John Woo. It's now John Woo having to compete with people who have basically ripped off his entire style and trying to dress it up in a sleek Y2K sheen that I don't think suits him. I think I think his stuff works when it's more gritty and grounded like this movie. And that's not necessarily his fault. It's just a sign of the times. I, I totally agree. I, I feel like, you know, as you were speaking, I was, thinking about how you know obviously the matrix was the real sort of tip of the spear just to so many things right like it really mm-hmm. kind of cracked everything open and then the the irony i think of of it to some degree is um you know the wachowskis then go and do speed racer mm-hmm. <laughs> which is this you know now i would say is sort of getting its flowers to some degree online of everyone sort of being like oh this was so ahead of its time and you know we didn't really know what we had when when it came out and this that and whatever but i think so much of it has to do with just costs right which is that Mm -hmm. these studios these action movies now have such enormous budgets that they're afraid to take any real risks and the only people that they let take risks are people that have blank checks like the wachowskis or something like that but you know it, it I guess my question to 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 the panel here, I guess, is who do we think out of just out of curiosity, and then we'll obviously get get back to John Woo, but who do you think is the best American action filmmaker? I would say at a point it was James Cameron, um, mm-hmm. because that I was, think yeah. the one-two punch of T2 and then the following year we have hard boiled. I mean, hard boiled 
steals the flower the gun and the flower from t2 yeah. and john woo can do whatever he wants as far as i'm concerned because everybody yeah, right. has stolen from him a hundred times so if he steals a couple things from cameron who gives a shit people um, steal from asian cinema in general i love the idea that john woo's like no this is a two-way street i'm stealing the end of die hard who cares yeah like yeah. i yeah, love yeah. that um but i think what ended up happening is we had hard-boiled which is quite possibly the greatest practically made action film ever and then previously we have t2 which is an action film that is developing just state-of-the-art cgi tech and that is going to then overcome everything moving forward because yeah. you think about action movies now and it's like 90 percent cgi and green screen and blue mm -hmm. screen and what have you whereas hard-boiled like he just converted a coca-cola factory into a hospital and blew it and up, blew it up. <laughs> mm -hmm. like the tea I, the tea room that was a building that was getting demoed five days later so <laughs> do whatever you want knock people through walls who cares I love it. Mm -hmm. I, I, emily I, i'm i'm thinking about this question honestly and i do like I, I don't know that there's a great answer right now. There aren't a lot of great American action directors. It's kind of like Chad Stahelski by default. Yeah. And like he, I like, I like the John Wick movies. I would love to see him do other things, but I also feel like when, if he wants to do other things, he's going to get sort of trapped in the computer graphics, uh, you yeah. know, morass that a lot of these movies get stuck in. And obviously like the Wachowskis have shown, you can do cool shit with that and you can do cool action-y type stuff within that. But yeah, I think Stahelski's really into the like stunt aspect of it, which makes yes. total sense given his background. But um, I have a grand, I have a grand theory of American action cinema that I oh, have arrived. At. No, I'm so I think I long, you know, I, this is not a new observation, but a lot of people have stated in the past. But like horror and comedy are two sides of the same mm -hmm. coin. Mm -hmm. I increasingly feel like action movies and musicals are two sides of the same coin. Definitely. I like that. And yes. like that the action movie uses, you know, action set pieces in a similar way that musicals use song and dance. And it makes me wonder, like, if people who are really good at making musicals would have a similar facility with flipping over in the way that comedy guys have seemed to have a really easy right. time making horror movies. So that's really interesting. You know, I fully agree with you about the musical thing. And that actually makes me think about what I think a lot of action <clears throat> filmmakers don't get right, at least on the American side of things, uh, which is geography. Um, the, the actually understanding what you're seeing mm -hmm. became sort of, I don't want to say passe, but with the, with the Michael Bay stuff where it became about holding people's attention mm -hmm. and cutting becoming more important than actually understanding the landscape of what you're seeing and actually being able to see the fluidity or, you know, as, as Emily says, sort of, you know, the musicality of an action sequence, I think got lost um, with that sort of, and I hate to say the MTV generation, but the music video you know, generation of, of action filmmakers that sort of came with the Bruckheimers and the Michael Bays and the, the, the clones of that sort of stuff, which is why I think someone like James Cameron, who is so good at it, who allows you to be able to really understand what you're seeing and really sort of um, enjoy the spectacle of it, I think is, is something that's really important. We're now in this morass of fucking CGI and whatever. So like, mm -hmm. who the hell knows anymore? But like, I think the Marvel movies are halfway decent sometimes at doing action but i agree we're, we're kind of nowhere right now when it comes to american action i do i do seeing the last hour of avatar 2 which would like is not reinventing the we field. Saw it it's absolutely yeah. a very basic cameron 
mashing up all his hits in one hour. But like seeing that reminded me that action sequences can be good, even with CGI. I agree. A hundred percent. It's, it's all about the presentation. And I think when, what, what John Woo did by essentially inventing gunfu as they call it or bullet ballet to echo Mm -hmm. the fact that it's musicality is in american cinema everything was was like the western shot so you would have the camera on clint eastwood and he would shoot and then you would cut to the person being hit and they would just fall over whereas john woo was like how about we put them both in the same shot you're gonna see the person who's firing and you're gonna see the reaction in that same shot so there's no cutting it's just one fluid motion and also borrowing from like woosia film and like gun is now taking the place of a sword which is an extension of your body so you don't just shoot somebody you punch shoot somebody like you push the gun out as if it is a weapon every way that you hold the gun yeah it's impractical but it looks awesome because as john woo says logic is very boring Mm -hmm. like i i have a dark horse contender for for the people who learned from john woo um, I don't think American cinema ever consistently hits action heights uh, at, to a point anymore where it's like, oh, that's the clear winner. I think there's flashes of brilliance across people's filmographies that's going, if you did that more often, you'd be the clear winner for action. <laughs> um, but especially in the 90s, there are people who like, oh, I know how to shoot action. Tarantino thinks he knows how to shoot action. He doesn't. Tarantino just rips off shots that are in other movies. And so you go, oh, Kill Bill's cool until you watch all of the movies that he borrows all the shots from. So he's like tricking you into thinking he's really good at shooting martial arts scenes and he's not. He's good enough. Honestly, I think the person who understands John Woo the best and in the specific movie that I'm going to reference is Sam Raimi in The Quick and the Dead. Where Sam Raimi understands that guns are cool, that guns are effective, and that guns are powerful. And yet he also understands style and flash and fun and excitement in a way that a lot of other people like Michael Bay don't understand how to make a John Woo style movie. You know, it's it's funny you say that because we did uh, Army of Darkness. Uh, was it last week, Emily? I don't remember. What it, we did. It, was, it was some time ago. It, yeah. was, it was sometime recently. It was sometime uh, in the last 10 days. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we were talking about how much fun Raimi has with the camera. Just mm-hmm. like, yeah, he just loves the camera. And you can tell John Woo loves the camera, right? Like, mm-hmm. he just loves giving you a crazy fisheye, you know, omniscient camera perspective of everything. Um, and the camera's just flying around in this movie, getting shots that you truly just am- amazed to behold what he's able to do with it. And I And I agree with you that so few filmmakers now love the camera i think on some level they feel like they're breaking some sort of fourth wall by being by making the camera feel like a person or a thing Uh i don't i don't necessarily i don't subscribe to that idea but i do think that some filmmakers do and it's funny because i would have argued that up until recently I don't think Michael Bay particularly liked the camera until he got a drone. <laughs> and yeah, now he's like, he got ambulance. Cameras are fun. <laughs> so no. like, 
<laughs> ambulance has some crazy cameras. It really does. <laughs> yeah, I I think that a lot of this that comes with American action and why this is a problem though, and why they don't love the camera is because of the millions of cuts though, where yes. you have Hong Kong cinema and this is not a traditional like martial arts movie. There's not a lot of t- traditional fights, but mm-hmm. everyone is doing stunts and moves as though they're doing like traditional fighting, mm-hmm. and they're all doing stunts. They're all doing their scenes, which means you can have these long shots that focus on faces and you're seeing people as opposed to like the easy punching bag of Taken where we have to do 12 shots in 10 seconds to hide the fact that he is an old man who can't hop a fence. (laughs) And that's the problem we have where we cast names. We cast people who can sell you on a movie to get people into cinema and yeah, maybe they'll do some of their own stunts, but unless you have rare exceptions like Michelle Yeoh or Keanu Reeves, yeah. you're not going to get these prolonged shots. And that means I think that you're now limited by using the camera because you can't show too much. I couldn't agree more. And and it, and it and that just highlights how great Chow Yun-Fat and Tony Leung are in this movie. <laughs> oh, I mean, so <laughs> they're both just movie stars where you're mm-hmm. just like... I mean, it, it, they're both babies in this, but you know what I mean? In terms of they're so young. This but, is like oh the God. perfect week to talk about them, considering that Chow Yun-Fat yes. and Tony Lung are the De Niro and Pacino of China. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is a they great thing. They kind day. of are, right? I mean, and, and hard to say who's hotter, quite frankly, because they're it's, both really beautiful. And that's why it's Tony's perfect. prettier. <laughs> Tony's the Al Pacino of this. Yeah. Tony is the yeah. Pacino. He for sure is because he also plays the more flowery characters. And Pacino is not yes. afraid to to join our That's side. True. Yeah, Tony plays more. I mean, not to say that Chayun Fett hasn't played heartfelt characters because I think that like I think is you know Crouching Tiger being an example of him being so beautifully heartfelt, mm-hmm. but like. Tony does seem to take more swigs yes. and do more things like that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to give just a touch of context for our listeners that maybe haven't seen Hard Boiled. Uh, the synopsis is a cop who loses his partner in a shootout with gun smugglers goes on a mission to catch them in order to get closer to the leaders of the ring. He joins forces with an undergra- undercover cop who's working as a gangster hitman. They use all means of excessive force to find them. Yeah, sure. That, it sounds like AI wrote that. I mean, Google did, but basically. Uh, Hard Boiled opened on April 16th, 19th. 1992 uh, in Asia, it would go on to make $19.7 million on a $4.5 million budget. The North American premiere of Harboiled was in September of 92 at the Toronto International Film Festival. At that premiere, the audience response was very positive with people stomping their feet and yelling at the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harboiled has 94% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 92% from audiences. Um, the New York Times said that... <laughs> They found it difficult to follow the action scenes and the subtitles at the same time, but stated that Mr. Okay. Wu does, in fact, seem to be a very brisk, talented director with a gift for flashy effect and bizarre confrontation. Uh, the LA Times said with hard-boiled, John Wu shows himself to be the best director of contemporary action films anywhere. Um, I, I mean, I can't imagine seeing this in 92, certainly in this hemisphere, right? Like, I imagine it probably blew people's minds in, in China, but here... I mean, it must have really been earth shattering. I actually mm-hmm. like looked back at the critical reception, yeah. and people in China were like, "That's okay, but it's not as good as his other movies." And in the U.S., <laughs> it, like it was literally in North America where people were like, "No, this is his best movie." People who had seen it, and like mm-hmm. obviously, he's you know, I'm not going to tell you what the best John Woo movie is because I haven't seen all of them, but I was fascinated by that split in the in the reception. 
it feels a little bit too like, and this happens pretty frequently, and you elicited uh, Harmony his name earlier, but Tarantino is a guy who, for good or bad, does seem to bring over cinema too, right? Like mm-hmm. he's a guy who, who you know, uh, put his name on Chunking Express when mm-hmm. that came out in video stores. Um, you know, Bong thanked him in his uh, Oscar speech. It feels as though... Um, Tarantino really and John Woo to some extent too has you know we talked about Reservoir Dogs Emily you know a few uh, months ago or whatever but like you know the shot of 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 Buscemi on the ground holding the gun at Harvey Keitel Mm -hmm. obviously elicits this movie like it does feel as though uh, Tarantino is lovingly aping Mm -hmm. these things but he's also bringing it to the attention of American audiences too which I guess is something yeah, like, that's not a new thing. Like, this, people have been saying this about Tarantino for a long time, and yeah. the fact that he is so good at highlighting underseen films is my favorite thing about him. Um, and, like, I'm not going to... I'm not a Tarantino hater. I actually think yeah. that he doesn't have any bad movies. It, honestly, his weakest film is probably Death Proof, which has his best action directing. And... It's true. I I mean, I was in a, I was in a thrift store or, like, a secondhand video store in rural Ohio last year, and I bought a documentary called Project Grizzly just because it said, Tarantino likes this movie, and it's I a had a great time. The it's oh, a the great first, documentary. The first 40 minutes is some of the most fun I've ever had watching a movie, and then it gets, like, kind of beaten in a suit. It's just right? like, jackass, like marching away. Yeah, he's, like, marching away from a movie uh, drive-in theater that's playing RoboCop in the background, and he's, like, lighting cigarettes, all lit on fire. He's so cool. And then it gets, like, woo-woo and spiritual, and it's, like, less entertaining and becomes introspective, which is And then he dies. They, yeah. made a, they made a movie about that guy? I watched a news segment about him, like, 25 years ago, and I've been chasing that high ever since. You, oh, you yeah. should watch oh, yeah. that documentary. Project Grizzly is so tight. It's just, for, for our listeners, Project Grizzly is a documentary about a man who wants to make a grizzly proof suit essentially mm-hmm. um and who doesn't it's not <laughs> um but uh it, it is amazing to watch him the, the, the thing that's burned in my brain is there's a moment in that documentary where he's where a, a, essentially a, a a log of a tree mm-hmm. is just launched at him and he is just catapulted in the yeah. air like it's it's, it's like crap. ewoks he just gets it's, they hit him with cars they throw him down hills it's the most canadian thing i've ever seen it's incredible it's fantastic. and i got as that a canadian, for a I'll dollar take that as a compliment oh i love canadians they're like <laughs> some of the best because y'all like y'all are you're wild i love you like as, an, as a clevelander i think i have specific kinship yeah, from across the lake um but no i love that about tarantino is that he highlights these bonkers films that are super duper fun and so like i'm not i'm not knocking him but this is definitely you 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 don't see john woo necessarily getting the flowers that he deserves and i think that what makes this movie not go over as as well in china at the time is that it's so masterful and I think if you right. really digest it, you see just how pristine all of the shots are, how all the action is shot, and how it's showing you everything. Like, there's no sloppy moments. It is, it is so crisp. And I think that if, unless you're looking for that or unless you're used to, you know, a little bit more, a little more, a little more dredge action, per se, um, I, I think it doesn't hit the same when you're just used to seeing cool stuff like this all the time, but just not at this elite level. 
Yeah, something that I learned um, in sort of doing a little bit of research about this is that I don't know if it's still the same, but definitely during this time period, if you were a stunt performer in China, that was your job full time and you got paid a yearly salary. It was not Mm -hmm. based on project. You just are a stuntman that's your life and then they call you up and they're like all right you got to put your head through a wall today and that's <laughs> how your job worked so there are there is a culture and an appreciation of stunt performance in china that doesn't exist here and because of that i think there's a little bit more of a critical eye for stunts in china because uh-huh. everybody is used to it in a way that we're not here i think we saw something similarly happening last year with rrr where in america we were like this is the greatest thing that's ever happened Happen and everyone lost their minds and then you would have some people in india that were like eh, it's not as best i mean it's good but there's movies done other things i like better <laughs> whereas over here we're like what are you talking about and it's just because we're not primed for this sort of thing because we don't get it mm-hmm. yeah. and we also i mean literally and figuratively we don't get it because a lot of these films will get released here mm-hmm. um and then on top of it you know it it, it doesn't i mean you're speaking of rightfully so sort of this the the, the cultural dissonance that seems to exist in america mm-hmm. shockingly mm-hmm. uh which is you know a, a lack of sort of of understanding other countries mm-hmm. and so every now and then something lands here that just like blows our minds and we're just like wait they're they're doing this i mean even to some extent i know this feels like a stretch but i'll, I'll say it anyway but like when we talked about strictly ballroom uh emily a few months ago you know that was the type of movie that people were like, what are they, what's going on in Australia? Why, why is this? <laughs> and, and I think that that's exciting, but I feel like we, as a, you know, as a country and certainly as, as sort of a film industry need to do a better job of, of seeing just more movies, quite honestly. I can't believe you would say that Americans are self-obsessed and don't like to look outside <laughs> their own borders. That's, uh, that's a stereotype it? that I've really? never heard before. Uh, no. What's interesting <laughs> is that at this point, 1992 is a real inflection point in how um, American moviegoers see cinema out of China. Certainly like, mm. like, kung fu films and things like that had been coming out of hong kong Mm -hmm. for a long time and people had been watching those but this is a year you know hong kong is about to be transferred from british control back to uh the chinese uh being governed by china uh which happens in 1997 so hong kong films had been making it to the u.s you know pretty consistently because it was uh, uh it, Hong Kong was a British territory so basically there was a trade policy going on Chinese films like it was harder to see them here because mm-hmm. of various geopolitical um tensions uh mm-hmm. but this is like a the year that uh Zhang Yimou's um Raise the Red Lantern which is mm-hmm. a big breakthrough film for Chinese cinema to American audiences you know it was mm-hmm. obviously movies like that were being made consistently in China <laughs> we just weren't always seeing them and I, I do hope we get to cover that on the show because it is extremely different from hard-boiled but mm-hmm. it's uh <laughs> it is this interesting period when American uh film goers are sort of like getting interested in films from countries in Asia that aren't Japan basically. And, and, and China is, is at the inflection point of that. Uh Yeah. It's, it is really interesting. You know, we've talked a lot about sort of the, 
the spectrum of the 90s a little bit and how 92 is is obviously kissing up against the 80s so you're still feeling a little bit of that 80s hangover at the beginning of the decade and as you get deeper into it you're starting to see just the changes and, and the different things that are being embraced but the spectrum of stuff that you know each week we talk about sort of, you know, the box office and what's in theaters and what you can see. And, you know, before we were on mic, uh, BJ and Harmony and I were talking about, uh, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. <laughs> and just, you know, uh, wistfully thinking of a time when people would go and see a movie like that. Um, it, it, it is sort of interesting, Emily, to your point about sort of how I would say more receptive audiences were to sort of a plethora of stuff. I mean, now I guess you could say streaming is that and people do have these choices and do have these options, but it just doesn't seem the same. And I I mean, wish I could have seen this on the big screen. This thing must have looked like gangbusters on the big screen. Oh, I yeah. can imagine. <laughs> I, I do think that um, one of the downsides of streaming, and this kind of harkens back to, okay, so I grew up in rural Ohio, not too far from Cleveland, and we didn't have like a blockbuster or anything like that. We had a place called The Party Shop, which was above a liquor store. And they that had that that was just that's what it was. I'd go there to get candy <laughs> cigarettes and then buy whatever, you know, direct to video sequel to a movie that like, oh, cool. I'll watch Blair Witch 2 before I see Blair Witch 1. It's that kind of place, you know. Um, so <laughs> something that you have now um, with movies like this is uh, Hard Boiled was not available to stream for a very, very, very long time. I don't know if it ever actually was available to stream until like the, within the last year. And so physical was the only way you could see it. But the problem that you have back then and now is when you try to watch a movie on streaming, you're just going to get the version you get. Yeah. And that means it might be a really bad dub. I remember I had to do a, uh, a podcast a few years ago for, I think it was female performances in horror or something like that. And I was trying to find the Spanish language version of Wreck because it rules. And I ended up renting it three times, saying it was the Spanish language version, and then got dubs. And I was so mad, I just bought the DVD. And so... <laughs> That's a problem that you have, though, with streaming, yes. where it just introduces yeah. it going like, hey, here's um, Yes, yes, Madam with Michelle Yeoh and Cynthia Rothrock. It's a bad dub. It's the only version you get. Deal with it. And you know, it's, I do it's, think this is an international issue to some degree as well, right? I mean, Hard Boiled in particular was a movie that Criterion had years ago on DVD mm -hmm. um, and then lost the rights to it and, you know, obviously didn't get them back i wish there was still a criterion version of this movie it would, i imagine it would be amazing mm -hmm. um but again the rights with these they tend to be fragmented between yeah. a bunch of different companies and they're not making excuses for anything you're saying it sucks but mm -hmm. i do wonder whether or not some of it is is uh, the international component but you know I, I think that john woo does seem to be one of those filmmakers that Everyone was all about John Woo in the 90s, right? And even, even a little bit at the top of the 2000s. And then American audiences either got tired of him or whatever the case might be. So it's like, it does feel like the shine is off of him a little bit. And it, it would be nice to see a reclamation a little bit of people being like, go back and see these amazing movies that he made in China. Um, or Jesus, watch Face Off again because it's amazing. <laughs> but like, I just do feel as though... Um, yeah, I don't know what really happened. I mean, Emily, do you feel like it was that people just got over it? Or do you think his movies just, I mean, they stopped being profitable, which I imagine is part of the problem. I think like his style, like we've, we've sort of mentioned, it's so thoroughly suffused everything else that like it yeah. became hard for him to 
stand out. And like he's a, he's a very good like storyteller, but certainly like he has a distinctive visual style, and it can be hard for those guys to pivot always, you know, right, we've, right, we've right. seen it happen a billion times in all film industries. Somebody comes along and has a really signature thing and then everybody else kind of, kind of takes it and, 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 and rips it off and it becomes harder for them to stand out. And certainly like plenty of people have made that pivot. I think that John Woo just got like sort of trapped in a corner by Hollywood. And like, he has gone back and made films in China. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't obviously haven't seen any of them very, uh, not a lot of them have had American distribution yeah. even. So mm-hmm. um, I wonder how they are. I hope they're good. I hope he's having his best life. I hope he's living his best life. I think <laughs> that he is. He's evidently he... making a film in the U S again. Um, oh, it's a, mm-hmm. uh, it's a, uh, it's a silent movie. So that's interesting. Well, it's so funny that you would say that. Cause I was thinking to myself as I was watching this, First of all, like his visuals are so dreamlike, for for lack of a better way of putting it. Like they, everything's kind of dialed up, obviously, and heightened. And in the beginning of the film, it almost felt like a Wong Kar Wai movie. You've got like this jazzy score and these neon lights and slow motion, so and, and it's beautiful. And I was just like, John Woo could make us could make a silent movie. Like he mm-hmm. really could. His his visuals are so beautiful. They tell so much of a story despite the fact that this movie is it's convoluted plot aside i do think that you could tell a lot of this just through visuals so i'd actually be really interested to see what his silent movie would look like i think we also underestimate the impact that parody has had on people like john woo Mm -hmm. um harmony and i have this conversation a lot on our show because of that video store she saw scary movie before she saw scream and that has completely impacted how her how scream oh, yeah. affects her i scream is scream one and especially scream two are mean movies scream two is especially mean and yet i'm like this doesn't feel right i just remember scream being funnier and i just have this weird disconnect and sure, sure. yeah it's a problem and i think this like a similar thing happened with john woo where suddenly like a lot of comedy doves. films and a lot of uh, doves, doves slow motion i think one of the sc- i think scary movie two parodies john woo and like combines it with like a charlie's angels thing but like mm-hmm. his style then kind of became a punchline so then when he does it with sincerity people don't know how to process it like it breaks our brains a little bit that's so um, true and that's just such a bummer because he's so much more than just doves and there is such an artistry to bullet ballet that he does and it it's just a shame that people think that it's a joke and it's like no this is storytelling like there is so much you can unpack about just the excessive violence in these movies and know that like oh this is all about like insecurity and not being able to address what you're really feeling so you have to shoot someone because you love them so much Mm -hmm. you know it i i agree with you so much you know when you think of mission impossible 2 and charlie's angels both coming out in 2000 right like you literally have like charlie's angels which i i I have a love-hate relationship with charlie's angels i think there's a lot to love there i feel most people Um, do (laughs) there's a lot to love the mcg i mean it's a lot but i'll just say that to your point it feels like the mcg's of hollywood took the wrong takeaways from john woo Mm -hmm. and just kind of it's 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 too easy to make fun of as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned. Like to do the doves in the slow motion to me is just like, you're, you're missing the point here entirely and in the process hurting John Woo. But. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
if there's one thing American cinema post probably 1990 sometimes struggles with often struggles with but particularly in this period it's it's sincerity the idea mm-hmm. that things can be especially in the heightened genres the mm. idea that things can be like kind of corny and kind of you know the yep. the last like third of this movie is about saving a bunch of babies like it mm-hmm. that, like that is like the most sincere thing imaginable not just was, saving the babies we have to put cotton in their ears to make sure yeah. they don't go deaf from all don't, these explosions their ears. Oh, that last baby is absolutely deaf <laughs> but like i was watching it and all these babies are crying and my wife is in the other room being like is our baby crying or is our baby suddenly 17 babies like no it's Um, hard boiled yeah it's just Uh hard boiled and she's like i thought that movie like there's so much gunfire why are there babies and i was like listen He's just got. He, he's he's got to shoot be there. the gun while holding the baby and there's yeah. also going to mm-hmm. be blood on the baby's face because yeah it's, that's, it's that's what he does beautiful. for a movie this violent it's so earnest mm-hmm. yes. it's like it's crazy the dissonance but that works somehow like i do think because i was reading about some of the development of the movie and i guess john woo who had been kind of tagged as making movies about gangsters and crime bosses mm-hmm. and what have you he wanted to make a film that glorified the police which I mean, that's a whole other can of idea. Can, always, yeah. Great different idea. Country, always it's works. its own different beast. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that that sincerity and that earnestness came from him wanting to sort of not be tagged as just a villainous action filmmaker. But yes. Yes. So I agree with all of that. And there's an interesting thing to be said about just guns as as a thing with John Woo and in sure. cinema. Um, I don't like guns. I've never fired a gun. I'm anti-gun. But when John Woo puts guns in a movie, I love nothing more than it's guns. Pretty. <laughs> I, I want the guns to cause sparks and explosions and send shooting dudes shooting through walls. And sure. no one loves blood splatter who's never made a horror movie more than John Woo. It's the fucking coolest. But the reason in other countries that you see uh, a strong emphasis on on police, like Jackie Chan with all of his police stories, um, with The Raid, with Yes, Madam, with a million, million other really awesome movies that center around the police, is you have guns involved if you are a good guy or a bad guy, and that's it. Not everyone has a gun in other countries. And I think the perception of firearms culturally from China to here is a big factor in why we don't love John Woo the way we love other action films that, you know, follow in the late nineties into the early two thousands. It's because once you hit the matrix as, as an early example, and you, you start to have like one good guy with a gun can solve everything. He's the one he's destined to win and he's going to win through like walking through a field of bullets with not a care in the world and nothing's going to hit him because Neo's the one and will hit like fire three bullets and kill three guys. And it's not about excessive misses and explosions and destroying things. It's about accuracy. You have that with, um, what is it? Wanted? Wanted's mm-hmm. another good mm-hmm. example of like extreme accuracy. bullets or Bull, something? Bend the bullets. Yeah, Snipers who can hit bullet. you from a mile away through train cars yeah. and people's windows sure. and stuff like that. We care so much about the accuracy and the skill, which I think comes back to like cowboys and how in a, in a, mm. in a, in a quick draw, it's all about one bullet and hitting and it matters. So people with guns, gunmen or just people who are wielding guns, we need them to be like superheroes. And we really 
romanticize the idea of that versus John Woo, where it's like, no, he's just a guy who happens to be good. There's a struggle to what he's doing. Like, sure. there's a constant threat of our main characters dying at any point. You know they're not going to because, you know, main characters, but there's a chance they might versus watching an American movie where it's like, no, they'll be fine. Like, they're, yeah, they're, it, uh, the good guy with the gun will beat the bad guy with the guns because that's how we view guns in this country. For sure. I, you know... I want to, Emily, you brought up the musical thing, and I wanted to speak of that in the context of what Harmony was just saying in terms of, like, the suspense of disbelief that comes with an action film versus the suspense of disbelief when it comes to a musical. And the idea that audiences seem much more willing to go on a violent uh, um, suspense of disbelief than they are with a musical one. And, and I guess I'm just sort of curious as to why you think that is. Um. I think uh, I think it does again come down to kind of a um, hyper masculinized fear of sincerity in American culture. Okay. Um, like, Fair. yeah, it just literally is just like yeah. we are more likely to uh, buy into the fantasy of oh, if I had a gun, I could I could kill everybody and and save the world. Like, again, I really like the John Wick movies, and um, they are a movie. They are movies mm-hmm. about if you wear the right suit, you're bulletproof. <laughs> and like. <laughs> That is like that is like a, a fantasy that I think is yeah. easier for um, the American film industry, which is pretty hyper masculinized, to tap into than like if I could just sing the right song, you know, the 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 lady would would fall in love with me. I gotta mm-hmm. like, I watched this last night. We're recording this in May. Is it May? It's May. It May. We're recording this in May. Time has stopped making sense for me because I'm uh-huh. on strike. Um, but uh, I we recorded. I watched this last night, and right as I started watching it, this news came in about Ron DeSantis signing a bunch of anti-trans bills in Florida. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I kind of tapped out for a while. Like, I could not focus in the way that I normally would be able to yeah. and that I wish I had because what I was focused on in the movie was fucking awesome. But, like, and I think that there was something about it in that context that made me bounce off the gunplay a little bit. Like, I mm-hmm. could recognize it as great staging, great um, um, cinematography, great, like, choreography, basically. Mm-hmm. But also some part of my brain was like, well, America's gun culture is broken. And I had to be like, this movie has nothing to do with America's mm-hmm. gun culture. Yeah. It was very much like that context. Yeah, it is, it is weirdly hard to watch this movie in 2023. Not in the way where it's like a bad movie, but in the way where, like, I have this cultural context that is affecting how I'm seeing it especially when the worst people in the world are trying to like eliminate my existence. So, yeah, I, you know, it's interesting, similar to I'm assuming everybody, but like, I don't like guns. I've never held a gun. I have no interest in, in, in I them. have, I own two guns and have shot guns, which is like, well, that's they, okay. I don't have them here in Los Angeles. They are in sure. South Dakota. I will never see them again because they're with family. I don't talk to, but technically I own two guns. So <laughs> I, you know, it's interesting. I, I feel like, um, as is the case, unfortunately, which is, you know, there are so so much gun violence in this country, um, we become numb to the amount of, you know, uh, mass shootings that happen on a regular basis. But um, I remember seeing John Wick 2 in the theater and actually finding it upsetting um, and, and just feeling like it was gun porn. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that movies by and large, 
it does feel as though guns are cool and look at how cool it is that we can do these things. And, and, and I'm a sucker for it, I guess, as much as anybody to some degree, but this film weirdly didn't feel that way to me. And I I don't know if that's. In the market for investment worthy bags, watches and fine jewelry. Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Because of how heightened it is and because of how just, you know, turned up and dialed up to 11. I mean, even just like the blood splatters are these truly theatrical in the way that Mm -hmm. they are played out. Like a potato Um, gun full of blood. (laughs) Exactly. Like it's, it's so on some level, I do find myself um, not engaging with it on that intellectual level. That I think, I think that John Woo finds just the right level of surreality. He goes just oh, right. enough over the right. top that you never feel like, well, I could do this. It never feels like an invitation to pick up a gun and start shooting people yourself in the way that John Wick can. And I think that's this sort of the point. like, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. There is a a YouTube critic that I quite enjoy um, called Accented Cinema, and they focus very heavily on Asian cinema. And they did an entire discussion about the difference between gun play and gun foo. And the fact mm-hmm. that gun foo, there is an artistry to it. There's a choreography to it. It is meticulously crafted and you can see that it's meticulously crafted to the point where it does sort of resemble a big giant full company dance number in a musical. And th- that's when it like, it leans into that like surreality that you're talking about, Emily, like Harmony pointed out when they have that scene in the warehouse and they enter there's guys on top of scaffolding their job is making sparks they're not Mm -hmm. making anything else they are just when they start shooting they don't stop making sparks they just keep making sparks the whole scene because you need that that like that is a practical you know this this is the scene in in the heights where they're splashing water at the pool but they're making sparks like that's what's happening and because we do have that surreality where it's like yeah they've never reloaded i like unless somebody is intentionally being shot of like look at how cool i am reloading this gun no one reloads anything in this movie anything. that's not reality so i think my brain can make that disconnect or i'm like yeah. i don't have to be afraid of this because this is in banana pants land i totally mm-hmm. agree with you i so, and i think that i wish more action movies were like that quite frankly but agreed similarly like the 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 movies uh the john wick movies i think do take off when it is clearly like balletic when it's clearly like Mm -hmm. keanu reeves can dance and you're Mm -hmm. watching him dance uh the fourth of those films was my favorite because the whole last hour is just look at keanu reeves dance and you're like yes i appreciate this 
mm-hmm. or fall down a flight of stairs. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like specifically with the John the John Wick films, I think what's really exciting about those is because you have you are now moving past gung fu into gunkata where mm-hmm. it's close range. It is physical yeah. combat and he's bouncing in and out of those and like I wish this movie had a little bit more of that because everyone in this can actually fight, but like, I'm not upset with the fact that we're essentially just getting fireworks for two hours. Like that's awesome. But that's, uh, that's where it gets into like the physicality that isn't merely just like the idea of a punch. There's flips and jumps and headlocks and all of these other little maneuvers he's doing interspliced with guns. And like the choreography is so much more deliberate there. I don't want to just talk about the effects of this movie, but I am interested in this movie had a video game follow up many, many, many years later. And I am interested yes. in how we think video games, which of course are produced all over the world, but predominantly in, in the US and Japan, how we think action video games and shooter video games, which um, 1993 is when Doom comes out, I think, uh, how those are, how those affected how we think about this genre of film. I think the first person aspect is probably the biggest Mm -hmm. thing that happened is we got really into first person shooter um, and that sort of visual. But what's always fascinating is that then we'll have these movies like Hardcore Henry, which we try to just like kind of make it like a POV (laughs) action film. And it feels too much for some people. Um, But I do think that there, there is something about making the audience feel like they are also in the driver's seat that some action movies are trying to capture um, that I don't necessarily like because I don't ever want to be in this position. I don't mm-hmm. want to be this person. I want to watch Chow Yun-Fat slide downstairs using the railing as balance and just take mm-hmm. out 12 guys at once. Like, I don't want to do that. That's not yeah. entertaining to me. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, I just as a sidebar, um, I'm one of like the 14 people who saw Hardcore Henry in theaters and that movie... <laughs> does not play on the small screen the way it does on the big screen. It is unreal how good it is in a theater. Um, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I no, well, by all means, go ahead. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I think that the, the, so I did, I have not seen Hardcore Henry. Um, <gasps> and, and, I, and I do think that like POV sequences are really interesting. Like I'm, my brain goes to like the opening of Strange Days that I think, oh. you know, Catherine mm-hmm. Bigelow does an amazing job of like putting you in that, situation and one, I, and I one think of my favorite movies ever go it's go a ahead. great movie <laughs> and watched it relatively recently when it was finally streaming on hbo max and who knows if it still is but um, i believe it's just uh, max phil oh uh, not well, until not, may 23rd because i'm getting the worst birthday present ever when this when this movie when, <laughs> when this, this episode drops, comes out people will not max, know what hbo max is anymore they'll be like what's <laughs> i'm that? still calling it hbo max that, that that they can you know zaslov can eat a bag of dicks but i, I still call the stadiums say, in my hometown by the names they had in like 1994 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've renamed but it I, twice. I, <laughs> I do think that that sequence at the top of Strange Days encapsulates what I would want every POV sort of gun sequence to be, which is chaotic, scary, and it ends with the person dying. <laughs> like, I think that there's something very um, powerful about that sequence. And I find that POV stuff in general, I mean, I'm just, I'm not a shaky cam person. So like it makes, I, I just get nauseous and it's just not for me. Cloverfield mm. was not. I saw Cloverfield not for front me. row center. It was the worst. Oh my God. I, I was, was in the, I almost barfed. Like I almost Oh, I did. <laughs> I barf a lot it's... in theaters though. Like <laughs> festivals really should just be sending me when they're like, this was so scary. Someone barfed. It's because I naturally overproduce adrenaline. So jump scares make me throw up. So it's mm-hmm. cool. 
Jesus, uh, that's terrible. I, I mean, I so yeah. All this is to say, Emily, that I think that the video game POV thing, like the first person thing, um, doesn't seem that there isn't that much of it. But I think, yeah, yeah, go ahead. yeah go I ahead. think go that ahead. where games have especially influenced American action cinema is now you kind of have a lot of story construction that's basically levels. Um, mm-hmm. And yes. you do, yes. you do have, you know, you are increasingly getting things like um, the side scrolling shot in, yes. in the yes. raid. And you like, there's the sequence in the daredevil TV show that is obviously mm-hmm. very video game influenced. John wick four has the overhead thing. Like there, are, the, the more that people are playing around with perspectives from games yes. that are not, um the mario brothers movie a terrible movie does do some stuff that's like here's mario running a mario brothers level and it's kind of cool when it does that that when the more that movies play with things that aren't first person because i think one of the things about and i'm gonna bring this back to hard boiled now watch me do this i'm a good host (laughs) i'm uh one of the things that i think um these movies sometimes can forget is that when you immerse yourself in something for too long you become overwhelmed by it there is a sequence in this movie that is uh two minutes and 42 seconds long that is one shot they're like Mm -hmm. clearing out some floors of this hospital and then at exactly the right moment john woo cuts to another thing and Mm -hmm. now how many movies have we had that are just one shot the whole way through and it's fine but your brain kind of like tunes out of it because there's no variation and like Mm -hmm. i think you know this this sort of escalating arms race we're in to have longer and longer like like shots while it has produced some really great stuff, particularly um, from like Children of Men, like it is, it is a scenario where it just kind of eventually your brain just kind of gets tired of it. And I, this movie reminded me it can be fun when it's just two minutes and forty two seconds mm-hmm. long instead of the whole. No, movie. for sure. I, you know, the movie that comes to mind for all of this for me is nineteen seventeen, and mm-hmm. and I think that that movie, which I I quite liked in the theater, um, and I've I've subsequently watched it and and liked it fine. And I have a friend who says, you know, it's just a video game, and I I think that's a little reductive. But I do think that because I think that Roger Deakins did shoot a beautiful movie. I mean, I think it's an impressive feat what he did, um, you know. But to your point, Emily, my brain kind of goes like where's the cut where's the cut like Mm -hmm. you you do kind of need these little breathers for Mm -hmm. your brain a little bit um and i i don't know i i i'm not a video game person so like i can't speak to necessarily any of that you know but yeah i think your brain perceives reality in cuts like this is not actually true like as i look around my room i'm seeing things you know and i'm seeing the 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 visual scanning as i go but as i focus on the screen and then i focus on this coffee mug that's discrete images in my brain my brain Uh is editing or it's doing comics panels or whatever you want to do Mm -hmm. so the thing of we're going to present a first person pov it can work in a video game because a video game already accepts you entering the space of it whereas mm-hmm. in a film you're sort of like well i mean this is not actually how i see the world even though it thinks it's yeah. showing yeah definitely because you know when you're in the video game you're in control which is again why i don't play horror games i watch let's plays of horror games because it's too personal i get sick i throw up um but uh you're in control you are the one who's choosing to look left or look right whereas in a movie when it's pov my brain is telling me i would like to look left but the the camera is not letting me the camera is going oh but our character is going to look right i'm like but that's not what i would have done so then like it there's a disconnect that happens well yeah it's like you're on a roller coaster Mm mm-hmm 
You're, it's yeah. like you're at a theme park and you're in those little cars, but you don't get to actually move. You get to move like back and forth, like six inches, but you're on a rail. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very um, unnatural. Ultimately, is what it, I think we're kind of all sensing, which is that it's bore. It's 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 trying to give off the sense of reality, but reality doesn't actually feel. It just feels a little bit off, and and I do think that you know that actually does sort of connect to John Woo, which is that he knows how real life is and he wants to dial it up a little bit. Um, but there's still elements of reality in this movie to some degree or another. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a groundedness in the relationship between uh, tequila and Alan. Um, yeah. Alan. <laughs> Alan. Alan. Like, it's, I mean, it's, it's amazing. The fact that the two leads names are tequila and Alan, two very different names. Yeah. Um, but, but their relationship is, complicated and and complex and and surprisingly rich and some of it has to do with the twists and turns of the plot and reveals of you know who's working for who and all that kind of stuff but you know i think about the scene of them on the boat together Mm -hmm. um and they're just kind of two guys just kind of being like i think i love you (laughs) yes on the boat guys being dudes like we've already established that alan hides guns in (laughs) books of shakespeare and flowers you know we've got tequila hiding guns in bird cages like so there is such this like overt you are trapping your masculine feelings inside something feminine and like that is incredible but between the boat scene and then the scene in the elevator where like tequila's lady's also there but it's like no these men are like in love with each other and she's Mm -hmm. just here giving her approval (laughs) like that's what's happening he's like got a flower on him and he's like "Mm." (laughs) i mean even just the fact that like the 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 end of the movie is essentially tequila letting alan go and giving mm-hmm. him his dream which is to be able to sort of um you know let go of all this death and carnage and chaos that he's kind of created put your paper um, cranes in the ocean and putting paper cranes in the, and, and letting his love go it's mm-hmm. it's this it's it's really yeah i i was i was really surprised by that central relationship and i do think that like tequila's girlfriend and him have some really cute witty banter mm-hmm. um you know especially when they're in the nursery at the end and he's like you don't want to have this many babies do you um <laughs> there's just and she's very kind of i like how curt and sort of no bullshit she is like she doesn't feel like she's just emotional wallpaper slaps a gunman <laughs> yeah it was supposed to be michelle yo way back when they were in development of this and then i guess the character changed and mm-hmm. whatever. but i i do think that um you know wong and 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 the the uncle and like there's a mad lot of dog mad <laughs> dog so cool there's a real <laughs> spectrum of male characters in this movie and there's you gotta appreciate the gray zone that they all kind of exist in mm-hmm. like I guess Wong's the most kind of mustache twirly villain, but even like Mad Dog seems to have like some morals. Yeah. Mad Dog is very much the guy you see in a lot of martial arts movies like this, where you can always tell just by looking at him, it's like their face is weathered. They're a little grisly. They're the heavy of the group that they call in whenever they need someone to really take care of a dirty job and keep tabs Mm -hmm. on people. But that guy always has like, he has, he has like a, a code of ethics he yeah. has like a warrior's code in this thing where it's like, yeah, I mean, sure, I kill people, but not like for no reason. And then when when Wong kills him, 
you're like that's fucked up man mad yeah. dog mad dog didn't deserve to go like this why yeah. is such a fascinating villain too because you know you get to the end again like just the the masculinity issues of where it's like slap yourself in the face say you're impotent take your pants off and it's like what <laughs> what is your end game here <laughs> man <gay. laughs> what are we doing like it's so absurd and what's ironic is that for you know harmony nice show we tear apart what the media has to say about femininity but we both have so much fun tackling movies that are dissecting masculinity because i don't oh, yeah. think it's done nearly enough uh because i think a lot of men including male critics are afraid to go there because then they have to answer questions about themselves they don't want to answer dare um, i say it's too sincere it's too sincere mm. it <laughs> and i i think that you know n- not to go back to our american filmmakers thing but i do think there's something to be said about that if you look at michael bay who's who's kind of the patron saint of all of this he's terrified of talking i mean his his masculinity is so on front street in such a ridiculous fashion that you're just sort of like you're you're not dealing michael you're you're not really like coping it is kind of fascinating you think michael like michael bay used to have feelings like he directed meatloaf's music videos (laughs) He had huge feelings, and then <laughs> he grew up and said, no, squash it down. Do you I think believe- Michael Bay has a therapist? Do you think, like, Michael Bay no. goes and talks no. about his... No, he should. He should. I, I, like, I would love to see what the recommended, like, cognitive behavioral therapy someone would suggest to Michael Bay. Is it, like, <laughs> hang from this helicopter and scream out how you really feel, Michael? Like, let it out. How do you feel about maybe John Frankenheimer was your dad, but nobody's sure. <laughs> um, I uh, I do think there's this video that um, Patrick H. Willems made recently that's about what he calls vibes movies, which are usually like kind of action adjacent. Their plot doesn't really matter. It's just about like often about guys hanging out in cinematic locations in front of beautiful uh beautiful um images and 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 backdrops and he lists miami vice and tenet as like the two foremost examples and i thought of both of those movies watching this movie so i wonder if this is just like a super amped up like like movie that is those movies are are about two men that love each other exactly i I think secretly (laughs) the vibes movie and and patrick you know if you're listening i think you should just call it when bros are in love and don't want to say it it's it's guys being dudes like that's that's what that genre is it's It's, the point breaks of the world where again men in love (laughs) i mean it's it's that it's rrr it's it's tremors it's like here here's actually an interesting point like there's a lot of very distinct homoeroticism of this movie however I'm I'm cautious to venture too far into that territory because as soon as you do that, you open up the can of worms of like, these two men love each other. What does that mean? It means they're gay. Men can't love each other unless they're gay. And it right, like right, right. Craw- it like it uh the odometer like goes all the way around and then it ends up as being homophobic. And so I think it's an interesting concept to entertain, but there is something I feel about these two where it's like, no, you see you see the other half of yourself in this man. Like you see similar struggles and I think that that's just beautiful and dudes rock. I well, I'm I I, uh, I do you, want to say something very quickly though, just very quickly. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I I which is I think that I totally agree with you Harmony and I think, you know, film Twitter is terrible and everyone can jump to conclusions or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um but the the definition of love is yeah gigantic so yes. like we, we we need to stop thinking of love in such binary terms mm-hmm. um but 
Yeah, go ahead. I just realized you're the one man on this podcast and you should be talking about this topic. (laughs) We should not be silencing you. (laughs) Um, I I mean, I'm fine being silenced. No, the... I, I I was thinking about on on Harmony and and BJ's show like again you two are dissecting how these movies present femininity and it feels like as a culture we are a lot more comfortable with the weird Venn diagram strange space between homo social friendships and homo erotic relationships uh-huh. that exists for especially young women mm-hmm. because you know in the male gazy world of American cinema like lesbian relationships are you know quote-unquote hot like and we don't have that with men where there's a lot stricter delineation and i deep down believe everybody's like a little bit queer i think everybody has like at least one exception you know basically mm-hmm. and i think that when i say that to women women are like yeah of course when i say that to people who are you know um somewhere outside of the gender binary they're like yes of course that's true but when i say that to like straight men they're like no unacceptable there's that hard line around it you know it definitely feels like i mean and i certainly was not raised in a a particularly overtly masculine way Mm -hmm. um you know i i and i do think that hopefully my generation was the first generation to really grapple with those definitions and the idea of like i do think that like metrosexuality was a term in the 90s Mm -hmm. we we Um, thought we were doing something we thought we were doing something i I think that i I think it was our way of dipping our toes into the water of like trying to push back on toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. and trying to sort of be like you don't need to be a bro you can be a dude that you can just be a guy that it, it, it all that sort of fluidity that got kind of messy that people that we're still dealing with right now i i think ultimately a movie like this can be looked at obviously through a bunch of lenses but i do think that the central relationship is and when i say a love story i don't mean that these two guys want necessarily Mm -hmm. to express themselves in some sort of sexual physical manner but i do think that they uh they see each other in each other Mm -hmm. they see you know what they maybe want to be or don't want to be in each other. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's fascinating. And I think that in a movie like this, it is surprising. You think, I think like you look at other primate species and they sometimes just use sex as like a bonding mechanism. Like friends will have sex or I get whatever the, whatever the chimpanzee equivalent of a friend is, (laughs) you know, but like, and I think you, but if a movie like this featured a scene where Alan and Tequila just slept together and it was no big deal, it was a thing they did as pals. It would sure. break. It would break the discourse, basically. Mm-hmm. Like we have, right. we still, even with this, like, like sort of the the Gen Z of it all, where there's so many people in Gen Z who are rejecting all of these binaries and are mm-hmm. just like, no, I'm just going to be the person I'm going to be. We still are built in this culture that's like, no, we need a term for everything. It can't mm-hmm. be complicated and weird. I uh-huh. agree, and and I, I I would even go what two steps farther. The first step I would say is that, you know, uh, spoiler. This country is pretty religious, um, so they <laughs> have they have uh, issues with sex. I, I think that there is obviously this this country in particular does seem to have sort of this um, hangups with sex is maybe the best way to put it, right? And and I think that that uh, can also be expressed just in in fear of the human body quite honestly like just mm-hmm. of of the vessel that we are in and and a lack of understanding about it and i think that 
that just scares people. I think that the idea of, as you said, like just two people just having sex, like it doesn't need to be a big thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, but in this country, it it needs to be. Yeah. It's, I think it's very, I don't know how to put this. Like, so I identify as a lesbian. I do not like men. That's not a thing in my life. I have had sex with men because sometimes it's just fun to have an orgasm and it not be your own doing like sometimes it's just fun and it took a very long time for me to like unpack what that meant and i think a lot of people don't want to take the time to unpack that some things can just be some things i mean we were joking earlier about the de niro and pacino like discourse that was going on online and like again i don't like men but i can objectively say i'm on team al pacino and like that doesn't (laughs) suddenly negate the fact that i'm a lesbian it just means i have eyes (laughs) like You well, this is, this is we, we've talked about this, Emily. I don't remember on what episode, but just the the idea of like something can be empirically attractive. Like some, mm-hmm. you can be a you. Can, I can see that you know that a, that a young Al Pacino and a young Robert De Niro are attractive men. I'm not. I, I have I have eyes, as you said. I have a brain. I can see these things. It doesn't necessarily mean that I want to express that physically with them. But that that's just. I, I think that. It scares the shit out of so many people in this country. It's Uh just baffling to me. And that's why, like, in a movie like this, to see something so genuine and heartfelt and earnest, it baked inside this Mm -hmm. action movie, I think, is is amazing. I don't. And But the thing is, I think, you know, we're obviously talking from an American perspective because we're Americans. That's what we know best. Uh, Actually, I'm a Canadian, but sure. No, listen. You've lived here long (laughs) enough No, you listen. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you Canada, let's just be honest, Canada is, is America too. Don't it's say it. better in many ways. Don't, but don't do it. <laughs> but every country, every culture has kind of a screwed up relationship with sex in one way or another. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you you certainly I'm sure that there is like one country that's not, and I'm sorry that I just offended you. But it does feel Spain? you know, I don't know. I'm just when you look a at <laughs> when you look at the criminalization of queer identities in many other countries when you look at the ways that um you know in in certain countries uh particularly in europe there's discussion of like well you know this this grown adult had sex with a 13 year old but it was good it was formative for them and like you know there's this there's a real like it's really tricky for us to talk about all of this stuff because i think a lot of it just stems from the idea of thinking of people as other people and i feel like human beings struggle often we all do to like to like see other humans as humans and anyway this discussion prompt reminded me to take my spironolactone and uh, block my testosterone production so uh that was that's a that's a useful Great. thing i'm glad came. to hear that i'm so I- glad that this episode has did, like just gone into primate sexuality <laughs> and musicals Wait, you didn't expect it to you didn't think it was gonna go there that's the power I, of I, john woo he is everything is and woo. nothing i you know i think that i i so I wanted to use, I'm going to use a word, uh, flamboyant does feel like a word that you could associate with John Woo as well. There is mm-hmm. this theatricality mm-hmm. to him, the way that, uh, that Alan and Tequila present themselves is very sort of plays into some stereotypes to a certain degree, but then also pushes against them a little bit. I think that Alan's introduction is, is, is a very sort of, uh, flamboyant. He's very sort of, uh, visually there's a swagger to him the way he kind of enters the space he's got this this giant book of Shakespeare that he pulls a gun out of (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but you know it does it does feel reminiscent of like in face-off for instance there's a lot of like 
long coats that are flapping in the wind and like very sort of almost musical, almost theatrical way of looking at things, which I think whether John Woo is is cognizant of it or not, is pushing back on a lot of these stereotypes that exist within these action films. Like mm-hmm. he is towing the line closer to what you were saying, Emily, of, of musicality and, and, and being in a musical than being in, you know, uh, whatever, you know, Dirty Harry or whatever you want to call it. But then I also think about John Wayne and I think about these old Westerns and I think about how there's that played this is that's playing into this as well right when you think of that slow motion and these long coats of these old cowboys and all that kind of stuff because it's not just theatricality it's also pageantry like yes yes, there is an intentional style and grace and poetry and beauty to what they're doing whether like whether or not they want to acknowledge it like even as (laughs) even wiping the blood off that baby's face like that is beauty that Mm -hmm. is poetry that is something that we are meant to look at and see like oh that's gorgeous that's lovely (laughs) it's true it really is sorry and like no like yeah but like a really understated element particularly of action films and especially like fast moving martial arts films is is the costume design though is the aesthetic like that matters um particularly in the tea house scene where there's there's smoke and gunfire and sparks and just lots of movement in a pretty tight space you need to have well defined like attire for each person because if they're moving and their backs turn to you and you can't see their face and there's a bunch of shit in the way you don't you can't follow the action you can't follow spatially where each person is in this interaction so not only it does it matter because john woo cares that stuff looks cool and i care that stuff looks cool so like that flamboyancy matters but it also works for practicality in terms of tracking the characters and the actions in any kind of busy scene no absolutely i you know i I think too that that He's just, he's always aware of what the audience is going to pay attention to. Uh-huh. Like just, the, he, he, there, there's even just sort of, there's, if you look at the frame, he just under, he's forcing you to look in certain directions that I think is really um, pretty brilliant. I think that all of these action sequences and all of these, there's, I would argue there's probably like four big action sequences in this film, but I love also, you know, when they're in this sort of subterranean compound under the hospital that the mm-hmm. bad guys have chosen <laughs> for reasons we don't know. It doesn't really matter. For don't reasons know why you we had this location. Yeah, yep. this is the location. <laughs> but but like the way that there's like neon lights going on to sort of accent what's going off of all the metal that's going on in this in this you know underground compound. He's just. I feel like John Woo understands every inch of the frame and is making sure that that you're that he's having fun with every inch of it as well mm-hmm. um he's also spoiler kind of a good actor guys john Woo's cameo yeah, he's so nice kind of good <laughs> i'm not used to seeing him with hair <laughs> fair but he he seems like he's a pretty good actor like uh-huh. uh, you know he doesn't show up in many of his movies quite honestly he's got a pretty meaty role in this movie and he he handles it really well i also Mm -hmm. like that i learned that john woo tends to shoot in sequence or like in chronological order and specifically does so because you know you shoot the tea room scene and you get that done and he then now knows well i have to kick it up a notch moving forward because that is so kick-ass that i i can't let the first one be the best and there's something to that where it's like yeah logistically in my brain i'm like oh my god that's a nightmare for like whatever producer line producer is having to structure this but from a storytelling perspective like 
you know, that's brilliant because then by the time you get to the hospital, it's like, well, guess it's going to be over an hour. Sorry. Like that, yeah. that, that so matters though for an action <laughs> film, like the climax, <clears throat> the climax should be the climax. Um, there's, there's another, uh, Chow Yun-Fat movie that I absolutely love despite having never fucking seen it. <laughs> it's called Tiger on the Beat. It co-stars, uh, as the villain, uh, Gordon Liu's there. And the climax of this movie, I have watched probably 25 times in my life, despite never seeing the movie because it's really hard to get a hold of. Those men sword fight with chainsaws. Love it. Love and it. They drop like, into the splits. It is the coolest. It's, it's the coolest incredible. scene. Like, you see the chainsaws collide and sparks are flying off of things. And, like, Chow's trying to defend a woman who's tied by her hands the whole time. And having that build up to a satisfying climax that makes you go, that's the best scene in the movie. Like that matters so much. It needs to be the coolest scene in the movie. And knowing that not, if you've never seen this before, you go, oh, I mean, it can't be cooler than the tea room, right? Well, it can't be better than the warehouse, right? And then it just keeps going. <laughs> it's, I, you know, I, you, you guys were talking about like suspensive disbelief and sort of the absurdity of this movie. The, the moment for me that I was like, was the handcuffs being used to unscrew the so bolt. So funny. And then the handcuffs <laughs> being used to unscrew a bullet. And I was just like, guys, <laughs> you're really pushing it here. The only part that I'm always like, hmm, okay, is when he gets shot in the back and then goes to the hospital. And then two seconds later, he's being like choked out and he's totally fine. And I'm like, oh, totally fine. You well, have like seven shots in the, good drugs. the back. <laughs> you got a lot I, of morphine uh... and he's fine. I play I play a lot of uh, tabletop role-playing games, and every time I see a movie like this and it's something like, oh, we just unscrewed this with the handcuffs, it's just somebody just rolled a 20. And, yeah. like, uh, <laughs> the DM's like, well, I guess you succeed. Um, okay. <laughs> it does. It, it was – that was the mo- – like, that moment is precluded by them realizing there are two buttons on one of the, the morgue drawers that opens a giant oh my God, vault. So I mean, funny. like mm-hmm. you just it's it's amazing, right? But yeah. I, and I'm I'm on board with all of it. But the the handcuffs, I was just like, my brain was just like, that wouldn't physically work. Like you physically could not, but whatever. Um it's it the, the whole climax of this film with the babies and the hospital and shooting wong in the eye somehow connecting to shooting the bullet in the i mean all like it's such a a, a crescendo it really does feel musical like it's all just mm-hmm. building to this insane climax that i just absolutely love it's the just company number in and out of windows <laughs> we've over got, we've and got over again. all of the hospital yeah. patients outside um what happened Babies to that guy that on was pants that are on the fire baby pe- little piss pot <laughs> save so of the good. day <laughs> like it's it's just incredible but i do what what happened to the guy they were doing surgery on that they kept like referring oh, he's to he's definitely dead incredible. like he's super just, dead but like where'd he go super dead that the, the pandemonium that happens in the hospital when like the shit's hitting the fan and they're just like running into operating rooms being like you need to be finished now <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy it's amazing i want to i just want to say that as now i am a parent and there's a thing that parents would do that always annoyed me before I became a parent, which was basically, mm-hmm. well, that baby's not a newborn. That baby's six months old. And I watched this movie and was like, all those babies aren't newborns. They're too big to be <laughs> newborns. It happens. Your brain, it's just a thing in your brain is suddenly like babies are the most interesting thing. So <laughs> are they? My baby's pretty good. I'm, your baby's I'm, I'm a fan. Great. I'm a you fan. You have a pretty cute I'm baby. Yeah. Thank you. 
<laughs> um, so what we do at the end of our episodes of this podcast are we we rate these films from zero to 99, zero being the lowest, 99 being the highest, obviously, 50% being the threshold with which you would recommend this film. Um, I'll go first. I'm also very curious to hear what you guys think of the film that we're covering next week as well. But um, I'm not going to rate this in 92 because I just didn't really see it uh before this podcast i was at a 75 and now i'm at an 88 like i think this movie is pretty pretty phenomenal i, I think that it um you know the, the deep dive we did into all things uh masculinity uh was you know really kind of went there but i also just feel like you know you and i hate this term of like a movie you have to turn your brain off to enjoy because i don't think that's a fair assessment and i kind of think it's you know glib but i do think that this is a movie that you have to like open your heart to like i think you really just have to like let it wash over you and really like enjoy every part of it and i think that i did that but this conversation got me even farther with it so i appreciate that but, now i want to do a youtube supercut set to phil collins you'll be in my heart of just like scenes from this movie <laughs> of the, there of needs to be a fan cam of these two in love like that's yeah. what i need yeah I, I want someone to cut the scene of him propelling in like tarzan with a gun into the warehouse set to the soundtrack of tarzan <laughs> Yeah, I would would watch. Uh, Emily, what's your what's your score on this? Oh gosh, last night uh, after I watched it, I was like, I think I was too distracted to fairly rate this movie, so I was going to come in and argue um, not applicable. But like, I this discussion made me realize I like watched all of this movie. Like, I was very tapped in, even though I, my mind was somewhere else. So I'm I'm going to go ninety. I really like this movie. Yeah, I really had a great time. Obviously, I didn't see it in 1992. Every week, I also rank everything on a queer phobia scale yeah, from one please. to ten. One being the least queer phobic and 10 being the most i'm gonna give this a two because it queer phobia doesn't really get involved and also they're in no. love they're deeply in love <laughs> and like i i agree that we shouldn't just say that two guys who gaze at each other longingly are gay because sometimes they're just best pals but yeah. also i mean i would like i would love to see them kiss they're handsome yeah. men and that yeah, would be fun they are there's yeah. so many moments in this movie too where you just kind of want to be like and kiss and like shove their heads yes. together <laughs> Uh, BJ, what's your what's your score? Um, so, uh, from a from a critical lens, it's a ninety. But I'm not a critic; mm -hmm. I'm an analyst, so it gets a ninety nine because this movie is as deep as you want it to be. This can be like dumb balls to the wall action, or this can be a deeply uh, intricate assessment of masculinity, and that makes my brain happy. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Harmony. So. I, I think that's very much, I, I agree with what BJ says there, because like something we didn't even mention is this is a movie about grief. Like his partner dies in the opening yes, scene yes. and mm -hmm. then he's just dealing with that for the rest of the movie. But you don't really need to pay attention to that to enjoy this movie. I think that this is so mad. It, it, the best signs for a good martial arts film. Okay. So there's, there's a hat. There's a trucker hat that goes around that uh -huh. says, the only art that matters is ska and pro wrestling. And I would like to add the caveat of martial arts to that list because yeah. that's the only art that matters. But yeah. the best films in this genre mean that you don't need to be reading the subtitles because there's so much shit happening. It's, it's a lot. But you can get context clues and follow the plot effortlessly. And this does that. It's, it's so one fair. of the best at what it does in terms of crafting its action, in terms of giving you a coherent enough story that, you know, mm -hmm. suspend your disbelief as you do with all action films. Yeah, it's a 99. I'm, I like big swings. We're going straight for big feelings. 99. I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, so so next week, um, 
the the previous host of podcast co-host of podcasts like it's 1999 is coming back uh to talk about kenny nybart's coming back to talk about white men we're gonna sword jump. fight we're gonna sword fight to see who <laughs> <gonna be> <laughs> yeah go ahead do you do you guys have thoughts on white men can't jump have you seen white men can't jump? i have a, a deep bit. affinity for white men can't jump mm-hmm. a very deep affinity for that movie and also revisited it recently and went mm. oh <laughs> um <laughs> I, I also have very curious thoughts that it's being remade. I'm very curious to see how that's uh, going to turn out. Um, yeah. Because, uh oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, you know, I watched it years ago. I have not seen it in a while. Emily, have you seen White Men Can't Jump? Uh, I, I, it was a home video thing that I saw back when I was probably 14. I have no memory of it Damn. beyond okay. that. My parents were furious that I watched it. <laughs> really? So, yeah, it had language, you know. Oh, so, okay. Okay. Yeah. It's I am I'm excited to watch it again. Kenny's an enormous fan of this film, so I'm very excited to talk with him about it. Um and I and I'm curious as to sort of because the O that you're speaking about, BJ, is obviously some of the datedness oh, of yeah. it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's a whole Jeopardy thing, which I think you'll love, Emily. So that's you've got that to look forward to. <laughs> there's there's a, truly a Jeopardy runner with... Um, why am I uh, drawing a blank on the actress's name, BJ? Um, it's uh, from White Men Can't... Uh, from oh, Rosie? Uh, Rosie Perez, of course. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, it's it's. I, I think Ron Shelton's a fascinating filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of the few great sports filmmakers. Like, mm-hmm. really understands and digs into sports in a way that very few people do. Tin Cup is fucking awesome. That's Good a movie. great, great movie Good that movie. I got too little attention. <laughs> and Bull Durham, obviously tremendous. Yeah. Um, so I'm 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 excited to to watch this film again. But most importantly. Uh, BJ Harmony, where can people find you? How can people listen to your wonderful podcast? Our podcast is anywhere that you get your podcasts. And we are at This Ends Up Prom on social media. And then I am on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And I am also a writer editor over at Slash Film. So you can find me musing over there. I'm currently in the process of educating everybody on what Five Nights at Freddy's is. So that's fun. Uh, I, I can I can I just say a quick uh, mm-hmm. plug for the Sense of Prom. Um, I think it is a well, it's it's a great great film podcast, and it's doing the thing that I think is very hard to do and not get cloying, which is sort of dissecting the ways that we think about um, ourselves and our identities and our genders and all of those things via pop culture. Um, and it's doing that in a way that is approachable and not at all um, hectoring. And I appreciate mm. that. Thanks. We try really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Harmony, sorry, where can people find you? Yeah, I mean, I'm around. I pop up on social media every once, like every three months I'll post on Instagram. So that's a thing. (laughs) Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velocit underscore trap underscore tour. I mostly just share things that I think are silly and fun and dumb nonsense and then occasionally plug shit that I did. So... (laughs) That's it. Sounds great. It sounds like yeah. you figured out social media, quite frankly. I'm so but jealous. I'm, I'm on her. less and less these days, you know? But the problem is, like, I would love to get rid of social media, but every pitch meeting I've been in for the last three years, I sit down, I do things, and I'm like, oh, my God, I love you on Twitter. And I'm like, son of a bitch. I guess I'm stuck <laughs> I know. here. It's, it's, and it's also, I mean, listen, having a podcast and not being on social media to some degree, uh, Twitter, what have you, is tricky. You know, you mm-hmm. got to get people to know about it. And it's, um, you know, that's just what it is. But I, yeah. Uh, 
I sold a novel and the the publisher was like, well, you have so many Twitter followers. And was like, God damn it. Uh (laughs) Stuck there forever. uh, Yeah. It's (laughs) yeah. It's, it's a terrible place. Um, But BJ Harmony, thank you so, so much for coming on and talking about hard boil with us. This was an absolute joy. Thanks for having us. It was a blast. (laughs) (laughs) We, we, we hope that you'll come back and talk about something else. Another movie that you go hell yeah about. Oh, of course. I'm sure there's so many. I'd have I'm to actually true. look at the list. I'd, I'll bring up my letterbox that no one should follow me at because I don't use it right and be like, well, what came out in 1992? <laughs> I don't use it right? What does that mean? She doesn't follow anybody. She doesn't uh, put any okay. comments on anything. It's basically okay. like lists. It's basically a list to remember movies that I... I basically rate every... I don't tweet rate anything unless it's like 3.5 and up <laughs> because it's like, I need to remember movies I like and I have the worst memory for this. <laughs> Yeah, I think that Letterboxd, so I was on Letterboxd for a hot second, and then I was like, I can't do this, it's too much. Uh, I have enough things, to enough social media, what have yeah. you. But in my brain, I thought it was going to be a place where I could sort of see everything that I watched in a mm-hmm. year and tracked it. And then I was just like, I don't need to do that. <laughs> it's, not, it's not good for my brain. I can't but do it because I'm, com- I'm a completionist, yeah. and I'll want to re- write oh. and review everything that I've done. Um, okay. because I have an addictive personality and so I have to I have to avoid that <laughs> I don't disagree I think I find other ways to scratch that itch and Same. my fear is that like it would become it would become a thing for me and I was like this this is probably mm-hmm. I should probably stop before this becomes. Um, yep yep relatable <laughs> I, I I got on there because Twitter was wigging me out too much and I was like this might be cooler and like honestly it's a pretty chill place I do like yeah. it um, I am ranking all the 92 movies there so as we watch oh, them I'm putting them <laughs> nice. in a list so um, yeah um, well thank you again guys this was an absolute joy um, please come back uh, mm-hmm. it's gonna be great thank you so <laughs> yeah. much whenever you. whenever I you want I can I can make time fantastic <laughs> thank you so much guys cool. thank, thank you, you. thank you bye, bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.